Welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm Meg. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. This week, Molly Hensley-Clancy of the Washington Post joins me to discuss her latest investigative report on women's soccer. This time, it's a news story with multiple allegations from former youth players coached by former Chicago Red Stars head coach Rory Dames with one former player stating that he groomed her and had sex with her once she turned 18. Now, this follows her reporting in November, which resulted in Dames's resignation from the Red Stars. More on that in our conversation. And that also included that Dames was reported by NWSL players, including Kristen Press, directly to U.S. Soccer, but he was cleared during an investigation and allowed to continue coaching. We have a lot to talk about. Before we get to the rest of today's episode, as always, to show your support of full-time plus get all of our women's soccer coverage and everything else The Athletic has to offer on our site and app, you can subscribe right now at theathletic.com slash full-time. Let's start with the news. Obviously, we will hold off on Molly's story since we will be talking about that at length, but also on Tuesday... The Washington Spirit announced the news plenty have been waiting to hear. Owner Michelle Kong will acquire the interests of both Steve Baldwin and Bill Lynch in the Washington Spirit and assume majority ownership of the team. It has obviously been a saga. Plenty of episodes here on the show discussing the Spirit over the past few months. Molly and I will get into this a bit. We should have plenty more at The Athletic on the news over the next few weeks as everything shakes out as well. One schedule is out at least with the Challenge Cup schedule dropping this week for the NWSL. The big news here is that our first look at Angel City FC and San Diego Wave FC will actually be in the same match when they make their tournament debuts during the opening weekend of the Challenge Cup running from March 18th to the 20th. Teams are going to be split into three regional groups, East, Center, and West. It should be easy enough to guess how that works out for everyone considering the geography of this league. The semifinals are for are set for Wednesday, May 4th, and the final on Saturday, May 7th. Now, the winners from each group will advance, plus whichever second-place team from those three groups has the best record. The weird part is going to be whoever makes the final is almost going to certainly have to postpone a regular season game that weekend, potentially even their home opener. No streaming or broadcast schedule yet for the Challenge Cup, and of course, no news yet on when the regular season schedule will drop either. She Believes Cup is practically already here, though, and yes, while the roster did drop last Thursday, as we expected, there's actually already been one change to it, with Abby Dahlkemper missing out due to a back injury and forward Trinity Rodman getting bumped up from a training player to full roster spot. Here is that roster for the upcoming games. In goalkeepers, we've got Aubrey Kingsbury, formerly Aubrey Bledsoe from the Washington Spirit, Casey Murphy from North Carolina Courage, and Alyssa Nair is back for the Chicago Red Stars. For defenders, we've got Alana Cook from OL Reign, Tierna Davidson, Chicago, Emily Fox from Racing Louisville FC, Sofia Huerta, OL Reign, Kelly O'Hara, Washington Spirit, Emily Sonnet, Washington Spirit, and Becky Sauerbrunn, Portland Thorns. In the midfield, Morgan Gattrall from Chicago, Lindsey Horan, now with Lyon, Rose Lavelle with the Reign, Katarine Macario, also Lyon, Christy Mewis, Gotham FC, Ashley Sanchez, Washington Spirit, and Andy Sullivan, Washington Spirit. In the forwards, we've got Ashley Hatch, again, Washington Spirit, Mal Pugh, Chicago, Midge Purse, Gotham FC, Trinity Rodman, Washington Spirit, Sophia Smith, Portland Thorns, and Lynn Williams, Kansas City Current. 
Steph Young and I will actually be at the games in Carson. We're hoping for a live room that will kind of be an extension of the show. So stay tuned on that front next week. Plus, we'll hopefully get to pop in on Angel City and the Wave to see how preseason is going in person. What a concept. All right. Molly Hensley-Clancy is a sports investigations reporter for the Washington Post. Before that, she was at BuzzFeed News as a national political reporter on the campaign trail, though I fondly remember the days when she got to dabble in U.S. Women's National Team coverage on BuzzFeed. It's only been just over a year since she took the role with the Post, and since then she has worked on multiple major stories that have shaped the course of the NWSL and beyond. All right, Molly. Uh, it's, it's been a while since we've actually like seen each other's faces, I think actually since the championship and (laughs) (laughs) since then there's been just a couple of, you know, large stories on your part, both about the former head coach of the Chicago Red Stars. So I just honestly wanted to start with kind of your long journey on this reporting. And I know, um, you know, we've compared notes kind of over (laughs) past, few months in terms of running into roadblocks and um, our own kind of versions of what we have uh, been going through as reporters. But I was just hoping that we could maybe start with how this started and and how this week ended up becoming a story of its own, because obviously the NWSL stuff has been so key, but we both know it's much, much larger than just the league. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, so I mean, this is like something I think both of us have been the broad issue of abuse in the league is obviously something both of us have been aware of and thinking of for a long time. And kind of as soon as I started looking into one coach, I think, you know, it becomes clear that this is a, you know, a systemic problem. Um, and so, you know, when I was reporting on Richie Burke for the Spirit, you know, I was already hearing people saying, you know, why aren't you looking at, at Roy Dames too, you know, um, and, you know, Paul Riley. So, um, I think that, and Christy Hall, you know, it was just like, there were so many names. Here's um, the list. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that um, when we did the first story on Rory in, in November, we really, we wanted to um, make it clear how players, this is not something that is a new issue, that it's something that players have known about for a long time. Um, you know, and have been trying to speak out about similar to, you know, how they, they tried to speak to speak out about Paul Riley. Um, and in, in the case of Rory, what mattered to us especially was that, that it was U.S. soccer that they had gone to not, um, you know, that Kristen Press had gone to not um, to the league itself. Um, and, you know, we saw that as just like uh, evidence of, of this broader, um, you know, systemic problem and, and broader culpability, um, you know, by more than just, you know, the couple people who have stepped down so far, um, from this. So, yeah. And so once that story came out, um, I just, uh, got kind of inundated with tips from women who had played for Rory as girls. And it kind of like within hours of publishing the story, it was very clear to me that there was another story there. I don't think I've ever gotten that kind of, um, response, Um, and kind of pretty quickly started speaking to, you know, the woman who was at the center of the story, who, you know, said that she had, had, you know, had a a sexual relationship with, with Rory and that he had groomed her. Um, and that, that's kind of how that all started. (laughs) And yeah, yeah. I I do. There's a lot, there's a lot to dig into. I, I 
do hope that people, I think probably most of the people listening to the show have already read the story. I mean, that was really kind of the the main event of the day, though obviously yeah. we can also discuss the other thing that happened on Tuesday with the the final sale of the Washington Spirit. But I think, you know, one of the, the things that we were kind of expecting post-Paul Riley's story was to kind of have that that second wave hit, which actually really never came mm. through, which I did find a little surprising. And the, there is such a a pattern to what we've kind of seen within the NWSL. You have these figures that have such power in the youth game, right? And then also have then kind of moved into the professional rank. And that goes for Richie Burke, right? Who also before he became an NWSL coach, had complaints and had people speaking up about his behavior as a head coach. Um, but Rory Dames, I think, is really kind of the example of it, just knowing the influence yeah. that he had within that world and not just within kind of the Chicago area, but also the landscape of the youth game. And what did what did that kind of reveal to you in terms of how that level of power plays a role in, in a story like this. Yeah. I mean, I think it was so central to the story um, and it was power that like he gave himself. It was power that, you know, federations and leagues gave to him that the red stars gave to him. I mean, it all like it, it was kind of a, a combination of many different people who were allowing him to have this power over, over particularly young girls. Um, but, you know, so many of them told me that it was the reason that they, you know, never said anything about him um, because they, you know, they wanted a college scholarship. They wanted, um, you know, he was telling them that like he was their only path to a college scholarship. And he was also telling their parents that. Um, so, I, I mean, I think the power was huge. I think that being the coach of the red stars um, also, you know, gave uh, power to him and power to Eclipse, um, the club he ran. And, you know, my story also um, included, you know, other coaches at Eclipse who have been, um, you know, allegedly abusive verbally and emotionally. Um, you know, I wrote about a coach who is still employed there who had been sanctioned by Say Sport um, for sexual harassment. Um, and so I think that, you know, and this is one of those things when we think it's all tied in together, you know, had, had Rory not had the job at the red stars that he did, he, he wouldn't have had the same kind of power in soccer that he got. And, um, you know, he probably wouldn't have had so much access to, to these players. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that has been really concerning too, is just, we've also seen coaches kind of protecting each other right and so it's not just necessarily okay you have this head coach of an NWSL team it's what if what is the staff seen right and when the staff also move on um what I guess that's kind of the one of the bigger questions I've been left with after a lot of this is just you know we've also watched uh, a coach like Craig Harrington come out of the Chicago program and then go to Utah and then leave under questionable circumstances and then get rehired. And then now going through kind of a similar situation in Mexico where he's abusing players on the field, allegedly, and just kind of <laughs> there's, I don't even know if there's a question here, but it just feels like the culture just kind of has not just protected itself, but also you just kind of see all of these people 
continue to rise in a way that is deeply concerning. Yeah, absolutely. And rise despite, you know, the, the people who, who do seem to see it consistently are players, not all players, you know, certainly, um, you know, I don't think that Rory was abusive to, you know, all of the Red Stars players. I think some of them liked playing for him, but, you know, there is this consistent thing of, you know, players recognizing that behavior is wrong, even when the people in power don't, and even when, you know, police don't. Um, and so that, I think it, it can be easy when we like look back at, you know, especially like 1998, that, you know, was a long time ago. It was, it was 25 years ago. And, you know, there, there can be a temptation, I think, to like, pretend that that behavior was acceptable then. But I think it's very clear when you talk to these women who played for him back then that they knew that there was something wrong, even if they couldn't articulate it. And that's, you know, why they went to police. That's why they were trying to protect their teammates. And they were, you know, failed by, by, by the system, um, failed by the school, you know? Yeah. I mean, but it's also, you have, a police report from 1998, but then also we know Kristen Press goes to U.S. soccer and an investigation is launched in 2018. And so in a 20-year time span, I think you would think, oh, maybe. Yeah. We like, we'll, we'll be... <laughs> yeah. Right. We'll be slightly better at this, question yeah. mark. And I did want to bring up a quote, and this was something that, that we had chatted about a little bit yesterday, but, you know... The the lawyer for Rory Dames is quoted within the story and points to the decision from U.S. Soccer, which and and I'm just going to quote directly here, which twice heard complaints from NWSL players to not discipline Dames, including after a 2018 investigation conducted by the governing body. And the quote from the lawyer is U.S. Soccer cleared Mr. Dames and issued no sanctions against him and expressly permitted him to continue coaching. And I hit that and had to put my phone down and just said to myself, well, that is not the defense that you think it is, first of all. But I do want to pull apart kind of this idea that these investigations are seen as essentially like a, a green light of, okay, nothing, nothing came of it. Here you go. Right. You get to just continue existing. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one thing that has come up, I think that came up with Paul Riley as well is this idea that there was nothing legal that happened. So there was nothing that we could do. Um, and, you know, I think that in both those cases, the idea that there was nothing legal is questionable, but still even accepting that premise, um, you know, the idea that, that, that team's hands are tied just because there's not something that's expressly illegal that happened, um, I think is, is, is definitely concerning. Um, you know, I think that that 2018 investigation, I reported that it included a player who is anonymous, who, you know, said that, that, that Rory had crossed boundaries with her. She said that he texted her at all hours. He, she said that he com he'd made comments about her appearance. Um, and she, you know, recognized that behavior, I think for what it was, or like a warning sign of what it potentially could be. That's why she, she told people about it. You know, she didn't just think that this was like kind of a random isolated thing. Um, and so she recognized that she went to us soccer and, and they didn't act based on that, you know? Um, and then when I spoke to this player that, that he had, you know, alleged he had groomed her, um, she was immediately like, I recognize that behavior. That's what he did to groom me when I was 16. Um, he he sent, sent me AOL instant messages at all hours, you know? Um, so she, she was able to see it for what it was, um, but, the, but, you know, U.S. soccer was not um, seemingly. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it really reminds me of the day before the Paul Riley story drops and I'm getting final statements from the teams and and NWSL and all that kind of stuff. And the North Carolina Courage sent me their statement. And the, the NWSL one also had this too of this kind of, well, players can report this now, right? Like we have a policy. Right. We just encourage if there's ever a situation, just report it and we'll take care of it. And you look at the evidence of every... <laughs> report that has happened at least at the NWSL level right like I think youth soccer we have honestly only scratched the surface of things that have happened in youth soccer but the reporting mechanisms are you know all over the place right but every time someone has tried to flag something they get told well it's not illegal there's nothing to it right like and I'm just wondering if we have even hit the point where that cycle of a league or an entity asking someone to proactively report and then immediately not doing anything with, with that report, if we've hit that point or if we are still very much kind of in the same cycle of we're going to have reports still and then <laughs> the players are going to do the right thing and say, this does not feel correct to me. Mm -hmm. This hits... You know, I, I think this is potentially unsafe. It's like, where do we get to that point where those are actually going to be taken seriously because they can say it as much as they want and they can have a policy, but we have we have not seen the connection yet between we encourage players to proactively report and then those reports actually meaning something. Right, and players are, are the ones who are going to have to see that. I mean, I do think that hopefully there is a, a shift in a dynamic which is that, and, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that this has to be the case, but I think that teams do understand that, you know, players are, are willing to speak up about this stuff if it, if it doesn't, you know, if they don't take care of it, if they don't investigate and do the right thing, um, you know, like they, they have any number of means um, to, to speak up about it. And they under, I think that they've seen that that is unfortunately right now, you know, um, the effective way to get people to hold people accountable um, so hopefully they get that trust in the system where they don't have to go public because it's painful and it's scary and it's vulnerable and, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. But at least for now, there is this, this, you know, accountability metric of like, we're going to report this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to shift a little bit into some Washington spirit discussion, because I think it is kind of this full circle moment, right. Of, this has been a long journey. A lot of it started with reporting from you in terms of what was happening with the Washington spirit, but Michelle Kang finally <laughs> acquiring the majority ownership of the team, which felt over the past couple months like it could actually not happen at yeah. all and then has come through. And just in terms of looking back at kind of the overall arc of the Washington spirit story, you know, are there maybe some lessons here that we can look at from like a bigger picture point of view in terms of, was this the ending that, that should have been the right one all along? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the lesson that sticks with me when I look at this for one is that, you know, the players want, this is what the players wanted. And um, they actually, they tried initially to kind of keep this in house and to kind of just privately go to Steve Baldwin, the owner and, and tell him what they wanted. He did not listen. 
Um, you know, he, he, they, what he did kind of upset him and then they went public. Um, and while I think there's like a many different factors, I think the fact that the players spoke up against their own ownership, you know, that's really important. And it's something we haven't really seen, um, on other teams yet. You know, I mean, I think that it's, it's very interesting kind of contrast that to the situation in Portland. Um, I think that one huge difference here is that Michelle King was there. They knew that, you know, if, if Steve Baldwin was forced to sell the team, they had someone that they already trusted who was going to invest, who had the resources, had their trust. Like they are, they felt safe with my, per my reporting with Michelle. Um, And so that like kind of enabled them to speak up in a way that, you know, if you're a player on another team, you may not, you know, you may be weighing this against like, will my team exist, you know? Um, and I think that that's going to be kind of, it's going to be interesting to watch going forward as like the results of investigations come out, as we learn more about who knew what and who did what, you know, um, whether players follow in the spirit's footsteps. Also, you know, what does Michelle Kang do now that she has a seat on the board of governors is another question that I have because, you know, I've done, we both reported on kind of how she um, behaved or, or how she kind of tried to hold the ownership of the spirit accountable. And I I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that she tries to do on the board of governors, you know? Yeah, that is absolutely the next subplot I am waiting for, because even kind of having a sense of the internal politics around the board of governors and their approach to the Washington spirit story, because it really felt like Todd Boley and that ownership group was an attractive kind of oh, it's just going to be one of these guys that comes in and, you know, he's going to be on our path. And M- Michelle Kang has been kind of a, a presence that is going to uh, exert pressure on them, right? And force them maybe into some conversations that they don't want to have. I mean, the NWSL Board of Governors, uh, this has been one of the really interesting kind of subplots because, you know, there are big questions of how do you trust the people who built the league in a way that has enabled so much of what happened to also lead the league out of it. We have the CBA now, um, which should in theory help, but you know, Michelle as compared to the rest of the board could be a real X factor um, (laughs) in terms of what she's going to bring to that governing body. And yeah, that is really, really something that, it's it's hard to report on it just because, you know, the lack of transparency around what the board even does half the time is a little bit of a struggle. But <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. I would, again, pay some significant money to be a fly on the wall in a NWSL board meeting and especially Michelle's first as, you know, first, I think the spirit actually has to get their seat back oh, <laughs> in yeah, terms right. of they don't have that. <laughs> That's true. So in theory, you know, I, I would assume that that is in the works, but yeah, it, it is definitely a, an interesting situation. But I think it's also, you know, one of the big conversations we've been having around the spirit too is how I think it was maybe the last big litmus test for the NWSL in terms of how fans were going to react to this league. If Michelle did not become the owner of the spirit, how really so many of the supporters from other teams had rallied around this issue. I mean, seeing the signs pop up in Kansas City and Portland and and everywhere in support of her bid for ownership, I think was something that was really interesting. And I think also something that we don't really see in other leagues ever. So, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I think as we watch the board of directors, we just, it's, you know, you think about it's the composition is still, you know, you've got, I mean, it's, you know, again, we don't know what the investigations are going to find, but, you know, I reported that Arnim Whistler, who, you know, from the Chicago Red Stars was, you know, aware of this investigation into Rory in 2018, that he was briefed on, on some of the findings, obviously Merrick Paulson was very aware, you know, like there, there are a number of men sitting on the board right now who, you know, should have been able to put the pieces together new of this massive abuse scandal, you know, and, and knew about a lot of it. Um, so I think, you know, it was always interesting to watch what happened to Steve Baldwin um, in that context as well. Right. Because, you know, if your owners may be acting in their own interest and, and concerned about, you know, what happens if I set a precedent of forcing someone out for, um, for something when, you know, an investigation into what I did right now. Um, it was, it was such a tricky situation and, and kind of fascinating to watch, you know. I think there's also a part of that too, with the, the players expressing a preference for one owner of over the other, like that, I think was something that probably made a lot of people very nervous of, Oh, if the players are willing to go out into public and say, we prefer this owner to take over as majority owner. And then that wish is just granted <laughs> what does that mean for the rest of us like of course there's gonna be some real fear on that front so yeah it, it has been a situation that obviously has had much larger implications just beyond Washington but now I think is also going to continue to have much larger implications beyond Washington simply because now we are going to be able to see the influence of Washington back in a you know, voting position. Yeah. So, all right. Um, I did want to ask you about the CBA as well. If you had any kind of early takes on, you know, obviously we still haven't seen the full document, but I think it has um, been influenced pretty heavily by <laughs> the events of the past year and, and everything that happened. But, you know, when you were looking at at some of the releases around this, was there anything that stuck out to you in terms of stuff that we've reported on where it's like, oh, I can see the connection or, oh, I can see how this might address some of what I've talked to players about? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, having power over your own career is like a huge one like that that may have come up more than i mean pay is the other one but like it, it's it's not even so much the stuff that's directly related to reporting and all that other kind of stuff although that's important too i think i think it really is pay and um you know free agency are going to make a, a big difference in terms of players feelings of being empowered although i will say that you know we there was consistently a dynamic of like um younger players or players who are like more on the fringes that were targeted for abuse. And so, you know, especially on the, on the spirit, I think it was a lot of, you know, actually in the red stars as well, like rookies, you know, younger players, mm -hmm. they won't have free agency. Um, you know, so I think that that's kind of something interesting um, to watch. I just thought to me, the, the players recognizing the power that they had in this moment, they clearly, you know, I've been part of like union um, entanglements at, when I worked at BuzzFeed and, you know, there's always like a, a clear, someone has the power right now, someone doesn't. Um, and the players had that power. And I felt like when they, you know, said, you know, we're not going to show up to preseason unless there's a CBA in place. That was just, that was a, a clear recognition of like, this is, 
you know, we have the power right now and we're going to use it. And I, I wonder, you know, I think that also kind of grew out of what happened last year and the, the work stoppage, you know, after the Paul Riley story and everything like that, um, you know, they kind of saw things differently, I imagine, or, or not differently, more clearly, you know. Yeah. I mean, it has been kind of interesting to even, you know, like I'm more of a casual baseball person, right? But like watching the MLB lockout as opposed to how the tail end of NWSL negotiations went in terms of players understanding that they could say we're not going to report to preseason and that there was going to be a huge swell of support behind that. And I think it is a very interesting dynamic to watch, even if ultimately the players are still very much in a space of wanting to be collaborative Mm -hmm. with the NWSL, right? Like, I think even after everything, there is kind of this sense of we have to work together if this league is going to survive and grow and be better, Mm -hmm. which I think does make sense. But it is kind of an interesting dynamic to watch. And maybe Portland is a really good example of that right at the moment in terms of players maybe being willing to put statements out that could be coming from a team, right? Um, Yeah, it it has just been a very interesting dynamic to watch, but also, you know, social media has been so crucial, I think, for the players in terms of being able to immediately, like, whip up support for both, uh, you know, immediately kind of putting out a list of demands for the league or deciding to not play games or you know, saying, okay, we're not going to report to preseason. We need a contract now, all that kind of stuff. So the league does not really have that tool (laughs) at its disposal either. So no, and they don't right now have that the goodwill of, you know, you can just imagine, I think anyone could have imagined the headlines. And unfortunately, we know that like, there are places that don't cover women's soccer until something really bad happens. And that was an obvious example where you were going to have places that normally wouldn't write about the league. We're going to write that like after this abuse scandal, the NWSL is not, you know, refused to come to terms of a contract and they're going to repeat what the minimum salary is, which the NWSL does not want to do, you know, like (laughs) less you can have that out in public, the better, frankly. So Um, I think it was pretty clear, you know, what would have happened had they not come into preseason. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that is definitely something I sent you the the Guardian article about kind of lack of women in in sports coverage and (laughs) like, but that's a factor for this league and it's a factor for the players as well. But the players have absolutely kind of, you know, the national team, I think, has the same situation where they know that public opinion is going to sway in their favor no matter what. I did want to ask you one last one before I I let you go, but just in terms of, you know, looking back at Chicago in terms of your stories, obviously, you know, we're still waiting to see results of investigations from the NWSL side. There are still two major investigations that we're waiting on the results for, both the NWSL and the joint investigation with the Players Association Sally Yates is kind of the one that I'm still really waiting to see where that where that falls. Um, and also, in theory, if we are going to get full reports out of these investigations as well, I think the intent of the Sally Yates one is a full report. But in terms of fallout from like an organizational standpoint in Chicago, they are still looking for a head coach. There was a very interesting statement that came out from Chicago saying, you know, we haven't found a candidate that the players deserve, but 
what is the future of someone like Arnim Whistler in this league too, to your point of someone who had an awareness there hasn't, there's been pressure on someone like Merritt Paulson and on Steve Malik from a Portland and North Carolina standpoint. But I think Chicago is very much in kind of its own boat right now. And I'm just wondering what your sense of that fallout has been for the team. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's something I'm still trying to understand. I think that, you know, one thing I will say is um, the head coach, the acting head coach they have in place right now. Um, as far as I know, he w- worked for Eclipse. He was brought into the team by Rory Dames. Rory still owns Eclipse. I believe he still works for Eclipse. So as far as I can, you know, unless he's resigned or, you know, the website's not up to date, like Rory Dames is is currently his employer um, in addition to the Red Stars. So that's something that both is notable and also, um, you know, might to me reflects, you know, it's not clear to me how much there's been any reckoning with the fact that, you know, this organization kept Rory Dames employed for, you know, for a decade. Um, You know, the way that he resigned was uh, certainly questionable. You know, it was a, we'd gone to them for comment and then, you know, at midnight, I wake up in the morning to see he's resigned to spend more time with his family. Um, I think people can put the pieces together of that. So I do think that there that this story um, has put more pressure just based on like some conversations I've had behind the scenes, more pressure on on like whether, you know, on RM um, to say something. I've reached out to him for comment um, this morning and, you know, haven't heard back. And, and um, I think a reporter for the Chicago Tribune said that they've been trying to get him to talk um, for weeks and, and haven't heard anything. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more coming out. And also there's, you know, he brought in these minority owners um, and I think you saw, you know, Sarah Spain, who, you know, is not like a, an influential owner in terms of her share of the team, but, um, you know, she was pretty quiet after the first story. And yesterday she did, you know, tweet about being really, really upset by, by the revelations of, um, you know, the youth, the abuse of youth players. And so I, I think it's definitely going to develop um, in the next few weeks and I'll report on it. I'm sure you will. Hopefully, you know, the, the Tribune will, too. It's great to have a, a local paper that's, like, also interested in this, you know? Uh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we saw it with the Spirit, right? How some of these smaller owner investors, right? Like, the Spirit are in their own boat where <laughs> these weren't really owners until they were owners. We don't need to get into that because it was pure nonsense. But <laughs> there are people who have been brought in specifically for team and... Yeah, they they could play uh, a role that is much larger than maybe the investment that they've actually made. But if you have a lot of people, you know, probably on a Zoom, right, discussing what to do next, I imagine the pressure that is being put on someone like Arnhem is going to be considerably higher than what it would have been five, six years ago, even. Yeah. And so for players, knowing that there are people who have stakes who may be interested in buying. I mean, I, I think it's just. The, the, the dynamic has changed um, and partly because of the spirit. So, Yeah, I think it's just also really interesting because it points back to so much of kind of the original tension of the NWSL2 where you have smaller teams, right, with owners who don't have like the big deep pockets. And so now the question becomes, is a sale kind of the the optimal thing, right, in terms of someone that can step in? You know, we now have this path of, 
bringing in a big investor and then that investor eventually taking over after a very painful journey. But is there a way to maybe do that in a fashion that protects the the team in terms of like the players itself, but also maybe protects the league? And I think the question is just, is the league looking at the Chicago situation and saying, is this one that we have to step in on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. All right, Molly, I definitely appreciate the time, especially I, I know the next 24 hours after a story like that dropping are <laughs> pretty intense. So I yeah. definitely appreciate it. Um, if you want to tell people how to follow your uh, coverage, that would be great. Just so that way, I mean, there will be links in the show notes, but I always um, want to make sure that people know how to support the reporting that is actually going to help change this league. Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter at Molly HC. Um, definitely, you know, subscribing to the post is great to read my stories. But I also, you know, if you want to read the story and you, you know, financially can't, um, I have like you can send me a DM on Twitter. I can get you a link so you can read it. Um, and you know, both things matter. Um, having people read it matters. So thank you. All right, Molly. Thank you, and hopefully we cross paths at some point. Yeah early in the season. Maybe at the we'll, hockey. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta figure out. It's also the same weekend as the US soccer annual general general no, meeting. Boring. So it's it's election time <laughs> in US soccer. Well, that'll be fun. Um all right. See ya. Thank you to Molly for her time. Again, if you have not read the story, the link is in the show notes. I do encourage you to subscribe if you are able to because stories like this take a huge amount of time and resources and subscribing is how we get more in-depth coverage of women's sports. One more thing, I should have a bonus show for you next week, hopefully early on in women's hockey to maybe help me manage my stress over Team USA. I've got a a good special guest lined up, someone who has been on the show before, so it should be an easy guess for you. For all things full-time, visit fulltimepod.com. There are links for all of the major podcast platforms in one spot, plus more information about the show. If you'd like to subscribe to The Athletic and support all of our women's soccer coverage, you can do that right now at theathletic.com slash fulltime. It's always one of our best deals. My name is Meg. You have been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week from L.A. Listener.